calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. You are listening to Episode 2 of Owner's Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 3, Diurnia Orbital, December 17, 2372. I walked Miss Kingsley down to the lock and stopped at the mess deck on the way. Miss Thomas was holding court at the table while Mr. Wyatt worked on the final touches of the evening meal. To my surprise, most of the off-duty crew was there. "'Miss Thomas?' I called to her across the mess deck and surrounding conversations went silent. "'Yes, Skipper. Get a good night's sleep tonight, Miss Thomas, and you'll have a full couple of days. You have a captain's board in the morning.' I enjoyed the look of shocked surprise on her face for a moment before turning to Mr. Wyatt. "'Avery, can you cover first section's mid-watch for her so she can sleep tomorrow night?' He beamed at her and nodded happily. "'Of course, Skipper. My pleasure.' Very well. I'll handle the meals on day watch tomorrow, so you plan to take the day off, get some sleep. You know the drill. Aye, aye, Captain. I eyed the chronometer. Miss Thomas, I've got to run some errands with Miss Kingsley here, and I'm leaving the ship. A chorus of aye, Captain, and thanks, Skipper, followed me down the passageway, and Miss Arione logged us off the ship. Good luck, Skipper, she whispered to me as I passed the watch station. I looked at her sharply, and she gave me a sly wink and nodded her head toward Miss Kingsley. I snorted and gave her a little smile on the way out of the lock. Miss Kingsley seemed unaffected by the chilly air of the docks and strode easily along, her portfolio under her arm, and just the briefest of glances in my direction. With all the people around the dock, and some of them paying rather closer attention to us than I was comfortable with, I didn't try to talk to her as we crossed the station and headed for the small craft docks. She crossed from the public side to the maintenance bay, swiping a key card and tapping a code into a pad. She glanced at me and pulled a heavy hatch open easily before leading me through and carefully closing it behind her, throwing the dogs and pressing the key code in a few smooth movements. You've done this before, I couldn't help comment. She smirked and struck off around the promenade. A few. The air was still cold, but it felt somehow less intense. Three locks in from the hatch, she stopped, consulted a readout on her tablet, and keyed the lock open. The name above the keypad read, Jezebel. The lock swung up, and Miss Kingsley led the way into the ship. Light from the passage outside gave enough illumination for us to find the lighting panel inside the inner lock, and she flipped the masters to bring up the lights. The ship itself was silent, except for the faintest of whooshing sounds coming from the air vent over my head. 
Miss Kingsley pivoted slowly and said, Welcome to the Jezebel. The first thought through my mind was she had to be kidding. The non-skid deck coat on the dock was scuffed and scraped almost down to metal in a meter-wide strip down the main passage and across the lock's threshold. The brow watch station, nothing more than a bulkhead-mounted console, looked as if it had been purposefully vandalized with keycaps missing and a crack across the display. I was prepared for the ship to smell stale, but the musty funk in the air told me that the ship's scrubbers needed some serious attention. How long has she been docked? It was the politest question I could think to ask. A week. Miss Kingsley's face clouded as she surveyed the ship. This wasn't exactly what you wanted to show a potential buyer, was it? She shook her head with a wry grin. No, Captain, it surely wasn't. Well, we knew we were going to put it on the market. Her voice trailed off as she eyed the vandalized terminal on the bulkhead. I walked over to it and ran a finger down the screen. It left a trail in the grimy dust. This break isn't new. How can you tell? If it were, then we'd see a mark in the dirt where whatever struck it broke it. I don't know when the last time this thing was cleaned, but it's been broken a while. We'll get it taken care of, Captain. Kirsten? I looked to make sure I had her attention. Call me Ishmael. She gave a soft laugh. Okay, Ishmael. Let's go see what's in the belly of this somewhat disreputable whale. I think that was Jonah, but okay. She shot me a look that was equal parts amusement and exasperation before leading the way somewhat tentatively down the main passage into the ship. Jezebel's main dock was an open plan, but with relatively low overheads. Cargo deck? I asked, noting the tie-downs and scrubbed-up bulkheads and decks. Kirsten nodded. It's a Higby 9500. She's rated for nine and a half metric kilotons. An engineer and captain can sail her legally anywhere in the Confederated planets, so long as you're only hauling cargo. Most fast packets are small, light ships, with big sails and heavy-duty jump drives giving them long legs to cross very long distances quickly. They can't carry much cargo, but are intended for low-mass, high-value transport. I eyed the cargo deck. That's a pretty low overhead. Miss Kingsley grimaced. That's one of the problems. She's rated for nine and a half, but lacks the volume to carry it unless it's really high-density stuff. What's under the decking? Tankage and keel generators. She turned and led me up a ladder to the first deck. Crew and passenger space here. A relatively roomy eat-in galley was on the starboard side of the landing, and a closed stateroom door was to port. Another ladder, rather steep and narrow, ran up, angled forward toward the bow. Miss Kingsley pointed out the galley with a grimace. It was far from pristine, but given what I'd seen so far in the ship, I was pleasantly surprised that it wasn't a smelly shambles. Captain's cabin here... She opened the closed door and went in, flipping the wall switch. No window, I'm afraid. She smiled at me as we stepped into the cabin, a relatively nondescript space. The head is through there, she pointed to a door. It was smaller than the Agamemnon, but the bunk looked inviting, even if the walls were stained and faded in places where artwork had been hung. There was no bedding on the bare mattress, but the mattress itself looked to be in relatively good shape. We went back out into the dorsal passage, and she led me aft, opening stateroom doors as we went and sticking our heads in. The one next to the cabin was almost as large, although it lacked its own private head. The rest were either obvious crew quarters with over-and-under bunks and lockers, or small passenger staterooms, a couple with double-wide bunks. A full airtight hatch aft opened into the engine room space that took up the full stern area of the ship. Standing at the top of the ladder, I could see that it would need a good engineer to put it right. You want to inspect it now, Ishmael? 
I shook my head. I'm not that good an engineer. It looks like it needs a good cleaning. I picked my hand off the ladder's handrail and showed her the grime I'd picked up with just that casual contact. She grimaced and pulled her own hand up and looked at it with distaste. Beyond that, I need someone rated on these machines to tell me what I'm looking at. She nodded and looked down into the gloom of the dimly lit space below. I can tell you the scrubbers need some work immediately, just from the smell. I'd guess the cartridges need replacing. She wrinkled her nose. I wondered and didn't want to say anything. She gave me an apologetic shrug. We made our way forward again, dogging the hatch to engineering and closing the stateroom doors as we went. When we got back to the bow, we climbed up the steep ladder to the bridge. The bridge held seats for five in the tiny cupola that rested half inside the hall, but only two had console access. A quick survey showed helm and engineering sitting side by side, and a comfy-looking captain's chair mounted to the deck behind, where the skipper could look over the shoulders of whomever happened to be manning the consoles. The bridge seemed to be in the best repair of all the spaces on the ship. The consoles weren't ancient, and the space looked a bit lived in, but cared for. So what do you think? Kirsten watched my face as I finished my inspection of the bridge. A bit worse for wear, and I'd need an engineering report and a full ship inspection before I'd get underway in it. I was thinking aloud more than answering her, but she nodded. This ship is going on a block, one way or another. Jeff made that decision himself a month ago. I looked over at her. Really? DST is trying to standardize the fleet to the optimal hull configurations for our various cargoes. This is the odd ship out, as it were, for fast packets. All our other packets are unwin eights. She ran a hand over the back of the captain's chair and then flicked her fingers together as if dusting them off. Did he plan to sell the ship to me? She looked at me with an odd twist to her mouth. Oddly, your name did come up, but mostly it was in response to the tribunal finding that cleared the salvage claim for auction of the Chernyakova. I didn't see the connection, and the lack of understanding must have shown on my face. What he said was something like, with all that money coming in here, one of those new millionaires will be looking to strike out on his own. Maybe Wang will buy it. I wandered around the bridge a bit, noting the relatively clean screens and console surfaces. The skid grid on the floor wasn't new, but it certainly wasn't the original. While I walked, I began to get some odd ideas. So, this plan with Ms. Maloney. It was in his will, but I wasn't really part of that, was I? I made it more statement than question. She looked at me and pursed her lips. What do you mean? If he put the codicil on five stanyards ago, it was before we even knew about the Chernyakovo. There was no way to predict that I'd be getting wealthy and striking out on my own, right? She shrugged and nodded. So what's with Ms. Maloney? Why isn't she just getting farmed out to one of DST's trading partners for seasoning? She sighed and shrugged again, looking at her smudged fingers for a moment before speaking. That's probably what Jeff was thinking when he put the codicil together. I hear a but in there. But Ames and I both argued against that plan. Why? Politics. Here's the nightmare scenario. Our future CEO goes to work for a quarter share for, say, allied haulers. They're a good company, have a good market position, and they'd really like to have a bigger share of a shipping pie. How handy would it be for them to take our new CEO, majority stockholder, and either sit her on a pedestal for a stanier, not working, not learning, not really having much to do at all except to drink coffee and eat bonbons, or actually teaching her the mistakes they want her to make when they send her back? So, send her to Dunsany Roads. There's no serious market competition from that far off. Get her a berth in one of the big corporate haulers, like Federated Freight or Schulman. She's not stupid, and not without resources. It would be easy for her to buy her way out of the obligation and to come back in a stanyard not knowing anything. Would she? 
I mean, the first scenario, okay, I can see that, I think. But is she the kind of woman who would play that kind of game? Can we take that kind of chance with the company? You're going to give the whole company to her when she comes back, and if she's really not stupid, then seeing what it's like on a ship should make a certain amount of sense, even to her. That's the thing, Ishmael. She leaned against a chair without sitting on it. Does it really make sense? I gave her a small smile. Uh, that's really the question I've been dancing around. What do you expect her to learn about running a shipping company by putting her in a quarter-share berth for a stanier? Kirsten shook her head. I was afraid you'd ask that. Why? Because that's what Ames and I have been asking Jeff ever since he put the codicil on his will. I blinked at her. She shook her head and went on. I could see if Jeff had required her to work as a trade broker or in an agent's shop. It would even make sense for him to require her to go to school. There's a great shipping management program at Port Numa, but even the Masters of Business program here at the University of Diurnia. She sighed and crossed her arms under her breasts. I parked my rump on the pilot's console and leaned my hands against the worn edge. Then why are you trying to sell me on this scheme so hard? She shook her head again. We don't have a choice. It's in his will, and now he's gone and we can't get it changed. Ames and I, all of us involved, we care about this company and we want it to succeed. We want it to stay in the family, but even if we didn't, we have to execute his will. How did I get mixed up in it? Jeff Maloney has been pulling my strings since I left the academy, and now this? She didn't answer right away, and after a few heartbeats I heard her sigh. The last time we had this conversation with Jeff... Ames and I were trying to convince him to change the codicil, to have her do something, anything, that would help her run the company. I looked up at her, nodding for her to go on. Ames was very frustrated with him. He just wouldn't budge on it. Finally, Ames asked him the question that you just asked me. What do you expect her to learn as a quarter share that's going to help her run the company? He just smiled in that maddening way he has. Then he said, I don't expect you to understand, Ames. You've never been a quarter share, and you really don't know what it's like out there. Her eyes had focused inwardly as she recalled. Ames was incensed. He actually shouted, But how is that going to help her run the company? Jeff just shook his head and refused to answer. I tried to calm them down and told them, I don't understand either. Jeff grinned at me, the bastard. Her voice choked a bit. Of course you don't, he said, but Ishmael Wong would. She looked down at the deck again, and one hand stole up to brush away a tear from her cheek that I pretended not to see. After a few heartbeats, she looked up at me. And now you're telling me you don't know either? I smiled at her. Actually, I think I do. Now. What? Her voice all but cracked on the syllable. We've been racking our brains for stanyas. I sighed and shook my head. Until you've been there, you can't really get it, I don't think. It's something you have to do more than something to learn. She scowled at me. That's not exactly a helpful answer, and pardon me for asking this, but how exactly would you know? You were never a quarter share. Actually, I started there. You didn't. I've seen your service jacket, Ishmael Huang. I shook my head. Look again. You've only seen my record since the academy. My first berth was quarter share in the Lois McKendrick over in Dunsany Roads. She blinked at me in confusion. You're not kidding, are you? I shook my head again. Not at all. We stood there in the bridge in silence. The reflections from the skin of the orbital filled the bridge with a silvery light, but gazing aft, the velvety black of the deep dark was dusted with stars. Staring out there, remembering the first time I'd seen the universe from the bridge of a ship, I was pretty sure I knew what Jeff Maloney wanted his daughter to learn before she took the helm of the company. I smiled. 
You didn't answer my question, I said at last. She looked up at me, confusion washing across her face. How much of this scheme is Jeff Maloney, and how much of it is you and Ames Jarvis? She sighed and shrugged. Well, we're improvising. Jeff was adamant about the codicil. Somewhere, somehow, we need to get her aboard a ship, and she has to work there for a stanya. The sooner the better, because the clock doesn't start ticking until she signs the articles. The company can't afford to wait too long with an acting CEO, and a board that's waiting for the heir apparent to take the reins. And? I prompted. Well, this ship was already slated for disposal. It's practically made for you, and the company can afford to give you a good deal on it. Jeff had arranged for Gwen Thomas to get her master's ticket over a month ago, and we'd have waited for another month or so before moving her up and given you another run with Agamemnon before making the leisurely transition after the settlements from the Chernyakova cleared. She shrugged. We weren't really sure what you'd do with your share of the prize money, but with Gwen Thomas moving up and the fleet consolidating, waving a metric buttload of credits under your nose before putting the ship up for sale seemed rather straightforward. He wanted to get rid of me. I felt stung. She smiled, and I thought her eyes were shining again as she shook her head. Not at all. I think he knew he couldn't keep you. And this, such as it is, she waved her hands around to indicate the ship. Well, I think it was his way of saying thanks. But he hated to lose people. She grinned at me again. Yeah, and he hated to lose good people more. But for all of his other faults, Jeff Maloney knew his business. I thought about that for more than a few heartbeats before Kirsten straightened up and headed for the ladder. If you've seen enough for now, Ishmael. Yes, thanks for the tour. I followed her down and out of the ship, securing it once more behind us. We walked in relative silence all the way back to the entrance to the maintenance dock where she offered her hand. I took it. I think you can find your way back from here. She'd regained her composure, but still looked exhausted. Thanks again. You've given me a lot to think about. There's still one thing I don't get. She arched an eyebrow. Only one. There's dozens I don't get about this whole thing. I laughed, but continued. He hated to lose people. When I let Rix leave the Agamemnon, he nearly blew a gasket. She grinned at me. But you still have Miss Arione aboard. I blinked at her. That bet cost me a hundred credits. Bet? She nodded with a low chuckle and crossed her arms again. Stacy Arione was ashore on half pay and in and out of trouble. We kept trying to get her onto a ship so we could either cut her loose entirely or get some work out of her. She looked up at me. Jeff bet me that he could get you to hire her. I told him you had too much sense to hire a brig rat. She sighed and shook her head. I never did find out how he got that outlander to offer Ricks the job or even how he knew Ricks would leave, but... Less than a week later, Ricks was gone. You'd winkled her out of the brig and had skedaddled off to break hall with her, even got her back up to full share. I barked a laugh. That bastard! She grinned sadly. Yeah, that's him. After a few heartbeats, she asked, How did he convince you? I looked at my boots and ran a hand down the back of my skull. He told me that if Ricks left, he'd punish me by making me hire her. A giggle bubbled up out of her and seemed to melt some of the tiredness out of her face. The bastard, she said, shaking her head in admiration. Still laughing, we headed in opposite directions around the promenade. I headed back to the Agamemnon, my head still spinning. She went her own way, and I couldn't help but wonder what her relationship to the late Jeff Maloney might have been, and what her current relationship with Ames Jarvis was. Chapter 4. 
Diurnia Orbital, December 18, 2372. I slipped into the galley to relieve Mr. Paul at 0540. I found him helping Mr. Wyatt with the breakfast prep, and the two of them looked up as I sauntered onto the mess deck. Morning, gentlemen, I said, forestalling the questions I saw on their faces. I snagged a mug and poured my first cup of the day, turning to rest my haunches against the counter while I sipped. After a few ticks of clattering, Mr. Paul couldn't take it anymore. What's going on, Skipper? I took another deliberate sip before looking at him. Miss Thomas is getting another shot at getting her master's license. The two of them shared a look, glancing briefly at each other before looking back at me. And, Mr. Paul prompted, and we'll see how she does, but the smart money will bet on her making it. I sipped my coffee again, hiding my grin at the flashes of consternation on their faces. Shall we change the watch, Mr. Paul? As the chronometer clicked over to 0545, we observed the requisite forms, even as Mr. Hill scooted onto the mess deck to grab a mug before taking his own post at the brow. He gave me a knowing smirk as he passed on the mess deck, but offered no comment. I settled at my customary seat at the long table and watched as Mr. Paul finished setting up the griddle and Mr. Wyatt pulled a tray of biscuits from the oven. Mr. Paul kept glancing at me, but I noticed that Avery kept looking at him with a certain degree of amusement. Eventually, Mr. Paul noticed and frowned at him. What's so funny? He kept his voice low, but in the quiet of the docked ship, it was clearly audible. Mr. Wyatt shot me a look that Mr. Paul echoed. Well, Mr. Paul, it's only been about a stanier, but I've learned that our captain here, he tossed his head in my direction while his deft hand stacked biscuits into a basket, will tell us whatever is going on as soon as he can. I toasted him with my mug, even as Mr. Paul's face fell a bit in combination of chagrin and disappointment. After a few heartbeats, he looked up again, his glance going from Mr. Wyatt to me and back. But something is going on, right? I smiled, and Mr. Wyatt nodded before speaking. Oh, yes, Mr. Paul, something is most definitely going on. The keyboard console was still on the table, and I used it to pull up the outgoing manifest. Three cans for jet. The delivery bonus was based on delivery by the end of March. Even if things went a little oddly, the Agamemnon should be able to make good on those. Mr. Paul focused on flipping some pancakes on the griddle, the tip of his tongue caught in the corner of his mouth at concentration, but Mr. Wyatt saw me looking at the cargoes. He arched an eyebrow in my direction, but I gave a slight shake of my head and a little shrug. He pursed his lips and returned the shrug just as Chief Gearhart and Miss Thomas came down to the mess deck with big smiles and broke up our little man-fest. Miss Thomas grabbed a coffee and sidled comfortably up to Mr. Wyatt to survey the breakfast arrangements. I made it a point not to notice the pat she gave Mr. Wyatt's butt, although I did see Chief Gearhart grin into her mug. Okay, close enough. I'm declaring breakfast open. Captain, if you'd do the honors... Mr. Wyatt looked pointedly at the end of the line, and I dutifully took plate in hand and dished up the ceremonial first helpings of pancakes, bacon, eggs, biscuits, and what looked like a very smooth sausage gravy. What, no potatoes? I looked up at Mr. Wyatt with a frown and a wink. Skipper, any more carbs in this breakfast, and we need a bigger lock just to hold the crew. The crew shared an appreciative chuckle, and by the time I'd taken my seat, I noticed that Mr. Schubert and Hill had joined us, although there was no sign of Ms. Arione. Counting the noses, I realized that the crew was all at breakfast, with that one exception, a notable occurrence for the first day in port. We settled in to enjoy the food, almost silently, and I ignored the curious glances that didn't quite end in questions. At 06.05, we heard the lock start to cycle, and Mr. Hill left his breakfast to tend to it. Ms. Arione accompanied him back onto the mess deck. She was in civvies and looked rather like she'd enjoyed her evening. Sorry I'm late, 
She looked around the table, scanning faces. Mr. Wyatt finished chewing and wiped his mouth with a napkin before answering. Plenty left, and plenty of time. I could see her glancing at me out of the corner of her eye, and then she shot Mr. Schubert a questioning look. He gave a short shake of his head, but continued eating. Well, I'll just get into a ship suit and be right back then. She announced it quite loudly and totally unnecessarily. I didn't even have time to finish my biscuit before she was back, properly attired in a clean ship suit. She worked her way methodically down the serving line, helping herself as she went. She placed her meal to normal place and then looked up the table to Miss Thomas. Can I get you anything while I'm up, Miss Thomas? Gwen smiled at her and shook her head. No, thank you, Miss Arione. I don't want to eat too much before the exam. She looked around the table with a grin. I don't mind admitting I'm a bit nervous. I'm sure you'll do fine today, I said. Tomorrow's the interview, and that's really the harder part. Oh, yes, no question there. She paused and looked at me with a question in her eyes. I still don't know how you managed to get me another board. I just did this last year before you joined us. I shook my head. I didn't, and it was Jeff Maloney's doing, apparently. That brought a lot of looks in my direction. I was going to put you in when we docked, but who knows how long it would have been before they got to you. She nodded, a rueful smile curling her mouth. Mr. Maloney was ahead of me and got this approved just a couple of weeks ago. The mention of Maloney added a somber tone to the table, and almost everybody went back to their meals. But why, Sar? I looked across to where Miss Thomas still studied my face. Why did he do this for me? I shrugged. I don't know for sure, but Miss Kingsley said he thought you'd make a good skipper, and he wanted to give you a chance. Mr. Wyatt smiled fondly at Miss Thomas, but Chief Gearhart kept her eyes hooded. Beside her, Miss Arione wasn't paying any attention to them, but I was startled to see her watching me like a cat watches a bird outside the window. Mr. Paul looked over at me. So, did Miss Kingsley have anything else to say, Skipper? Silence descended at that question as all eyes turned to me. I glanced around and saw that everybody but Miss Arione had cleaned their plates. Most were just sipping their coffees and waiting. I looked down the table to see Mr. Hill grinning back at me. As a matter of fact, she did. I looked from face to face, gathering them in before I went on. There are probably going to be some changes here, not necessarily the ones you think. I sipped my coffee to think about how much I could tell them, because it was obvious I needed to tell them something. The company is planning on losing a lot of people when the settlement from the Chernyakova comes in. They grinned at me. Will you be one of them, Skipper? Mr. Wyatt asked, innocence fairly dripping from his voice. I don't know yet, Mr. Wyatt... I could see that wasn't exactly the answer they were expecting. What they're most concerned with is that they're going to lose most of the crew of the Tinker. Nobody blinked. They're also going to make a lot of money themselves and will be consolidating the fleet and working to get the new CEO up to speed. Mr. Paul perked up at that. Who's going to be the new CEO? Ames Jarvis will be acting CEO for the time being. I looked around the table. Chief Gearhart still wasn't looking me in the eye and I wondered what was on her mind. I sipped my coffee before adding, it'll probably be a stanier or so before they get it all sorted out. So where did you go with Miss Kingsley, Captain? Miss Arione had a sly grin, but I saw the chief flinch at the question. Maintenance docks to look at a ship they're going to retire. Gonna buy it, sir. Miss Arione sipped her coffee with a bland expression on her face. I looked at her sharply. Buy it, Miss Arione. The Jezebel. Are they trying to sell it to you? All eyes went to her, and she looked from face to face in alarm. What? I had a few drinks with Samantha Wilson last night. She was crew on the Jez and had quite a lot to say about being beached. She looked back to me. So? 
Are you going to buy it, Skipper? I shook my head. I don't know yet, Miss Arione. The eyes all shifted back to my end of the table. But you're thinking about it, she pressed. I scanned the faces. Many of them looked concerned, and in that delay I knew I had only one answer. I'm thinking about it. I could see them all inhale and forestalled comment by holding up my hand. I'm just thinking about it. The Chernyakova hasn't even been auctioned off yet, and until it does, and until we see what those shares are, I'm just guessing like everybody else. I lowered my hand and looked around again. They seemed to be calming down. In the meantime, we've got a ship to run. I looked at the chief. How are we in engineering, chief? Tankage topping off? We need any spares? Chief Gearhart looked up at me for the first time, and I could still see something in her eyes, but I couldn't read it. Tanks will be topped off by noon, Captain. I've got to check the stores for replacement filter cartridges, but we'll have a full complement by tomorrow. Portside sail generator has a bit of a wobble in it that I need to look at, but it's probably just a loose coil. It happens every so often. We've pushed the girls hard over the last tenure. How soon before our next yard availability? She shook her hand. I'd have to check the records, but it's at least another stanier out. Thank you, Chief. I turned to Mr. Wyatt. Stores orders placed, Mr. Wyatt. Yes, Captain. We should be topped off in stores by tomorrow, and our new cans will be up from the dispatch yard tomorrow afternoon. Plenty of time. Mr. Paul, are there many astrogation updates this trip? He shook his head. No, sir. A few, but nothing serious on this end of the sector. We've got system backups to do, though, and I'll have the shoreside copies up at home office by tomorrow. I turned down to look at the ratings. How are you all fixed at the co-op? Mr. Hill and Ms. Arione looked to Mr. Schubert to report. He grinned and turned to me. We've booked a table for three days, Skipper. He looked at the chrono on the bulkhead. I need to be heading up there soon. Ms. Arione is going to help me. We got some excellent textiles on break-all, and we have a few other odds and ends to sell off. Excellent. I looked around the table. Thank you, all. I really appreciate the work you all put in. I paused. We've come a long way in Estania, but there's still a lot to do. Mr. Maloney's passing is a blow and it's going to cause reverberations up and down the chain of command. Having it happen now, with the prize money from the Chernyakova due in a couple of weeks, just adds to the general confusion. But if we focus on what's in front of us, keep our eyes on what's important, then we'll sail out of the storm in good shape. That seemed to satisfy them for the most part, and they looked around at each other for a moment before Mr. Hill rose, bust his dirty dishes, and headed back for the brow without a word. As if it were a signal, everybody else started to move at once. Within half a stand... The breakfast mess was cleared away, and the crew was off on their various tasks, including Miss Thomas, looking shipshape in Bristol fashion in her undress uniform, on her way to the CPJCT offices for day one of her captain's examination. For my part, I helped Mr. Wyatt clean up the galley and mess deck. As he finished stowing the last of the cleaned cooking gear, I snagged a cup of fresh coffee and settled back at the table. He soon joined me with a cup of his own and eyed me curiously over the rim of his mug. What? I asked. He smiled a little, but he didn't look happy. How soon before you're off the ship, Skipper? I shrugged. I'm not sure, Avery. They told you, though, right? You're being reassigned? He spoke quietly, but never took his eyes off my face. In a manner of speaking, I gave a little shrug. I'm fired. He blinked at me and set his coffee cup down on the table with an audible click. Fired? On what grounds? On the grounds that I'm going to be too rich to want to work for them any longer. I let him chew on that for a few heartbeats before I continued. I suspect that it's more convenience than reality. If I want to stay on, I suspect they'll let me. 
In truth, I wasn't sure if I really believed that, but it was a useful fiction. How rich? I shrugged again. Nobody knows until the Chernyakova sells. Bull. They've got a guess that's better than a coin toss. I bet they know within a few percent what it'll fetch at auction. Ten million, I said quietly, still not quite used to it myself. Bull. It'll go for a lot more than that. I shook my head. N no. That's how much they think my share will come to. If the ship sells for what they think it'll get, anybody who was on the tinker on that trip will be a millionaire. He blinked at me silently as he tried to process it. Boggling, isn't it? His head started shaking back and forth slowly. Ten million credits? You're going to be that rich? My left shoulder hunched in a half shrug. Compared to that, my princely wage here is rounding error. Eventually Avery regained control of his mouth. What are you going to do? Good question. With that much money, I'm not exactly up there with the Maloney's and the Shulman's and all, but I'm definitely swimming in a deeper pool than I'm used to. You know what this means, don't you, Ishmael? He looked at me with a kindly smile. You tell me. I'm so buried in possibilities, I'm not sure which end is up, and I'm still thinking that when the dust settles, this is going to have just been a pipe dream. I'll clear a few thousand and be back at work on the next ship out. He shook his head. Even if it's only one million, that's enough to retire on. You could probably live off the income of that and be very comfortable for the rest of your life. He paused to let me consider that. You and the chief could get a little place down on the ground, raise up a batch of little shipmates. He saw the stricken look on my face and his voice trailed off. The chief and I won't be doing anything. I tried to keep my voice low and level, but was surprised how hard that was. At least, nothing like that. Why? I thought you were head over heels for her. It must have been my turn for the dumb blinking. I felt like he'd hit me on the back of the head, and all I could do was stare at him. What? You think we're blind? The smile crept back across his face. Things have been a little odd here for a while, but I thought, that is, Gwen and I both thought. He could see he wasn't connecting with my higher brain functions. What? Something's happened. We had a little chat and she made it clear that she's not interested in an extended relationship with me. It's impossible while I'm captain, and she's in my crew anyway, but she made it quite clear that I'm not on her docket. He placed both palms on the table and pushed himself upright. Is that what she told you? The disbelief sounded plainly in his voice. I grimaced and nodded. Yeah. She caught me coming off watch about a week ago. We had a rather short and brutal conversation in the cabin. She made it pretty clear to me. Things have been a bit smoother since. He just looked at me like I was crazy before asking again. That's what she told you? Yes, that's what she told me. I sighed and took a deep swig off my coffee. All right, then. He murmured it almost to himself. So now what? Now we keep the ship together, wait for the outcome of the captain's board, and see what happens day after tomorrow. What happens day after tomorrow? He'd lost the smug smile and seemed as confused as I felt. We hire a new first mate to replace Gwen and get this cargo moving to Jet. His face flashed into panic. What? What do you mean, replace Gwen? Where's Gwen going? Even in his distress, his voice hissed out quietly, although, judging from his look, I thought he might want to scream. I know I did. She's going into the captain's cabin, I told him flatly. Assuming she wants it. Does she? Well, of course, but what about you? I go ashore. And do what? 
Wait for the auction payout, and maybe help DST with refitting that ship for sale. What? The Jezebel? Yeah, it's a bit of a wreck at the moment, but cleaned up, straightened out, and crewed properly, it might be something. He slumped into his seat again. So you're thinking about going indie? I sighed and shrugged. It's the obvious choice, and with that kind of windfall, I'd never have a better chance. We sat there for a few ticks, sipping our coffee, but I'm not sure either of us tasted it. Don't tell Gwen. I looked across at him. Tonight when she gets back, don't tell her until after she gets through with the interview. He cocked his head to the side. Why? Because it'll be hard enough for her to do without sitting there thinking she's going to be sitting in the captain's chair before the week is out. He frowned. That's not how it works. I know, but it's something Maloney himself arranged before he died. He even reconvened her last panel, so he must have thought she'd have a good chance. By the end of the week? Kirsten Kingsley seemed to think so, and I'm not betting against that woman on a political wager. He snorted, and we drank quietly for another few ticks before we were interrupted by the raucous sound of the lock's call buzzer, and we heard the lock mechanism open. Avery looked at me in question, and I shrugged. Maybe an encyclopedia salesman. A what? Never mind. Ancient reference. Something my mother used to say. Skipper, it's for you. Mr. Hill stood in the door to the mess deck with a burly-looking man in a nicely tailored business suit with a briefcase under his arm. I stood and crossed to meet him. Good morning, Captain. I'm Richard Larks, partner at Larks, Simpson & Green. Kirsten Kingsley asked me to visit you. Larks, Simpson & Green. I tried to dredge up the name. Yes, Captain. We've been helping the Maloney family with their financial strategies for almost a century. My father worked with Philo Maloney himself back in the beginning. Impressive. Did Miss Kingsley tell you why you should come to see me on the ship today, Mr. Larks? He smiled. She did, and might I suggest we go someplace where we can sit and chat? I think we have much to discuss. I turned to Mr. Hill. Thank you, Mr. Hill. I'll be in the cabin if you need me. He gave a little nod and headed back down the passage. He would ask later if I knew Mr. Hill. The curiosity would eat at him until he did. Coffee, Mr. Larks. Only if it's no bother, Captain. I looked over my shoulder. Mr. Wyatt, could I trouble you for a tray? Of course, Captain. You gents go on up, and I'll bring you one in a moment. Thank you, Mr. Wyatt. I turned to my mountainous guest and nodded to the ladder. This way, Mr. Larks. Thanks for listening to Owner's Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. Music is Larry O'Gaff, a traditional tune performed by Ragtime Larry and Tom Jode, and is used with permission of the artists. You can find this and other works by Ragtime Larry and Tom Jode on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a production of Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution No Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 U.S. License. For more information about the book, the author, and the golden age of the Solar Clipper, visit www.solarclipper.com. Mm-hmm.